He dug with his foot at the block upon which he stood. Buried, he said. They get half the use they once did. Less, I should imagine, if you say so. Disused, the stones either became overgrown or sank into the ground and disappeared forever. Around us, pale paths crossed the hillside and moor in all directions. They should pull them back up and keep them in order, he said. They have an obligation. They, I said to him, the authorities, bylaws, the men responsible. It was a vapour of reasoning. First the canal through the bottom, and now the railway spreading faster than the planners could plot their lines and the navvies swing their picks. One of the ponies came close to us and pushed its head into the man's side. He wrapped it with his knuckles, causing it to snort and shy away from him. There's no need for... I began to say. No need for what? he said angrily. In six months it'll get more than a slap on its head, and not just this one. I see, I said. I very much doubt that. Your sort never do. Or if you do, then you're careful to see only what you want to see. I was alarmed by this sudden hostility and took a step away from him. My sort, I said. He grinned at me. Your sort. You're the parson's son, over in Eweth, that suffering man. Then you know me, I said. He smiled again at the clumsy remark. Oh, everybody knows you, he said. He wiped a hand across his mouth. Neither of us spoke for a moment. The perishing east wind rose around us. Do you ever wonder at it? he said eventually. At what? All this newness and change. All this. He tailed off, suddenly uncertain of himself, though whether at what he wanted to say, or his reason for saying it to me in particular, I could not be sure. Sometimes, I said. Everyone talks forever of progress, he said, meaning they speak of it most when they profit from it most. He nodded. And people like you and me, we are the men pushed aside and left only to watch, and then made to applaud all these other men's successes. I wanted to tell him to speak for himself, to leave me out of his tightening bundle of despair. But nothing I might have said, none of my denials, would have convinced him, and so I stayed silent. What do you do? he said. You are work. You were never educated so you cannot sit on your father's easy cushion. My father's easy cushion? No, I said. Besides, it was never my calling. So? I used to work on the railway, I said. I have been a tutor to private households. I was once an artist. I meant, what do you do now? he said. The words were their own answer, a buffer to my slowing engine of a life. Now I merely persist and endure, I said grandly. And what's that then? Endure. At present my prospects appear to be exactly what they are, he said, grinning again, pointed downwards and running fast. If you say so, I said. It seemed to me now that he believed I had come up onto that cold hillside with the sole purpose of confronting him there, 
and of providing him with an outlet for his own scorn and disappointment in the world. If I were your father, he began to say, believe me, the man has no comfortable life. I heard he was blinded by work and worry. A cataract, I said, long since remedied. All that close Bible reading and such. He works tirelessly for the good of his parishioners, I said, feeling suddenly weary. No one doubts that. Not like Colshaw over at Backup, who should be hanged for the men he's killed. Killed? I'm certain he's done no such thing. I had seen Caleb Colshaw three months previously, delayed in Howarth by bad weather, sitting in our parlour, blocking the fire and licking his lips at the sight of my sister's I meant all the men, women and children he's turned away from his door.